Today I have the pleasure of welcoming uh, Dr. Manish Goyal. Many of us know him from his time here during uh, his fellowship at, uh, in critical care at Shock Trauma. Um, some of us know him from other venues as well. He uh, started out doing his medical training at uh, Medical College of, uh, Vir- <clears throat> of Virginia. Uh, did his emergency medicine training at Christiana Care, followed up with a fellowship here uh, at, at Shock Trauma. And uh, started out his academic career following that at University of Pennsylvania, where he was for a number of years. It is at the uh, Center for Resuscitation. Um, and uh, most recently uh, came down back to the Baltimore, D.C. area to uh, help run the Pulmonary Critical Care Fellowship there, where he serves as Associate Program Director and uh, works clinically at Washington Hospital Center. Um, and uh, he is today going to be talking about intensive care delivery outside of the ICU. So welcome, Anish. Great. Um, thank you very much for the invitation and the introduction. It is always a pleasure to, to come back to uh, University of Maryland. Some of my fondest uh, educational memories were from here, learning from folks like Tom Scalia and Maureen McCunn and, and Jim O'Connor and Dave Gens and Nader Habashi. I, I hope you guys all recognize how fortunate you are to be here. Uh, and it's a real privilege for me to come back. Um, I don't have any conflicts uh, for this talk. Um, I will say that this talk is kind of born out of an article that I published about two years ago, and my uh, division chief of critical care read it and said, you know, I want to hear this in the form of grand rounds. So I put this together. It's a bit of an atypical talk, and it'll be about 35 to 40 minutes. But please, if you have any questions, stop, uh, and, and I'm happy to answer them. So we'll start with the case. This is a 39-year-old gentleman, he's a male, uh, developed an upper respiratory infection. He went to see his primary care doctor who said, you know, you probably have a viral syndrome. Take some Tylenol, some chicken soup, things should get better. He started getting better, and then he started getting worse. Called his primary care doctor, this was on a Friday afternoon, left a message, didn't hear back from him, continued to get worse on, on, until on Saturday when his wife called 911 because he was getting more short of breath and confused. He came to our emergency department. His heart rate was 124. His blood pressure is 98 over 50. His respiratory rate was 28. His temperature is 102.1, and his oxygen saturation was 90% on a non-rebreather. He appeared confused. He was hot to touch. He had increased work of breathing and coarse breath sounds bilaterally, and he had a benign abdominal exam. In the emergency department, he had two IVs established. He had uh, cultures and labs drawn and sent. We started fluid boluses. Uh, His lactate came back at 3.1, white blood cell count came back at 18.6, and it looked like he had evidence of acute kidney injury. Uh, With a creatinine of 34 and a, uh, excuse me, a BUN of 34 and a creatinine of 1.7. He had no medical history. He was intubated for hypoxemia and worsening uh, uh, work of breathing. And this is his chest x-ray. So I think we'd probably all agree Uh, This gentleman has evidence of severe sepsis and ARDS. So considering this patient, which of the following interventions is associated with the lower mortality, again, in this patient? Is it antimicrobials within one hour? Is it early goal-directed therapy? Is using albumin as your resuscitation fluid? Is it initiating norepinephrine? Or is it transferring the patient from the emergency department to the ICU in less than six hours? Yeah, so let's go through each one of these. Let's talk first about antimicrobials. 
And I'm sure all of you are familiar with these data. This is, these are data that come from Anand Kumar, published back in 2006, and I think probably still the best data that look at time antimicrobial. It's a retrospective cohort study, including patients from 14 ICUs, 2,700 or so adults with septic shock. The investigators tried to isolate duration of hypotension until appropriate antimicrobials were administered, and they correlated this with mortality. And what they found, as again all of you know, is that for every hour appropriate antimicrobials were withheld, mortality went up by seven, about 7.5%. Seven this is absolute increases in mortality. And I think these are probably some of the most important data for us to know when we're caring for our patients with septic shock. But can we extrapolate these data to our patient? Our patient with a pressure of 98 over 50 and a lactate of 3.1. And I can tell you that he certainly wouldn't have qualified for this trial, and I don't think we actually can extrapolate these data. So I had the pleasure of being at the Society of Critical Care Medicine in 2005 when Dr. Kumar presented his data uh, and was really kind of blown away. Subsequently, we, we collaborated on a couple things, and I asked him, I said, in severe sepsis patients, those who are not hypotensive, do you see the same signal? And he said no, which I think is fascinating. So while I think timing of antimicrobial is important, I don't know that we have the same level of data for those with severe sepsis. What about the use of early goal-directed therapy? All of us know about Rivers' work, this landmark article published in 2001 that advocated this uh, three-pong resuscitation strategy, um, resuscitating to CVP, mean arterial pressure, uh, SCVO2, and in this single-center study in Detroit, they demonstrated a 16% reduction in mortality if we did this aggressive resuscitation. We now have three studies, uh, modern-day studies, the PROCESS trial, of which we were a site at the hospital center, the ARISE study, and as of two days ago, the PROMISE trial that have been published, that all question whether or not we continue to need to use this specific algorithm with modern-day resuscitation strategies. I think all of us are delivering more fluids. All of us are uh, giving antimicrobials quicker and potentially using more vasoactives. And again, these data question whether or not we need to continue using that specific algorithm. And equally as important, our patient, again, wouldn't have qualified for any of these four studies. So I think for a number of reasons, we could argue that our patient doesn't really need early goal-directed therapy. <clears throat> what about using albumin as our primary resuscitation fluid? I think the best data that exists on, al on albumin are this from the SAFE study. This published back in 2004. Um, about 7,000 adults in ICUs in a multi-center randomized controlled trial where the intervention was 4% albumin versus normal saline just as your resuscitation fluid. And they looked at all-cause mortality at 28 days. They did have predefined subgroups. Those with severe sepsis and those with uh, trauma uh, were some of the subgroups. But for their primary outcome, they found no difference. No difference if you chose to use albumin uh, versus normal saline. Now, again, there were some suggestions that in trauma patients, maybe patients did worse if they got albumin. In septic patients, maybe they did better if they got albumin. But as a primary outcome, no difference. What about initiating norepinephrine? So our patient has a pressure of 98 over 50. That would give them a map of 66. Is that the right target? Should we be choosing a target of 65 to 70, or should we maybe choose a higher target? And this is something that ASFAR and colleagues just recently addressed. This was published last year in the New England Journal. About 800 or so patients with septic shock, and these folks were randomized to different target mean arterial pressures. The first group randomized to a target pressure of 65 to 70. The second group 
80 to 85. And the way they drove these pressures up was essentially with norepinephrine. Folks got about the same fluids, uh, and 95% of them had norepinephrine infusions. If you look at the blood pressure tracings, these are the maps for the patients. In the high group, they certainly do show a difference. These folks were between 80 to 90 or so. The low group, a little bit higher than what they were shooting for, but still 70 to 75 or so. And if we look at the difference in outcomes, there is no difference in these groups. Now, there was a subgroup of those with chronic hypertension. And although there was no mortality difference, if you were to target a higher blood pressure, those folks were less likely to require renal replacement therapy. But they were more likely to develop atrial fibrillation. So, you know, not really, can't really say that there's any data to say we should be targeting a higher uh, uh, blood pressure routinely. What about transferring the patient from the emergency department to the ICU in less than six hours? Do we have data to say that this actually impacts mortality? And I think the answer to that is yes. This is an interesting study that came out of Phil Dellinger's group, published back in critical, in critical care back in 2007. And it's a retrospective cross-sectional analysis of the Project Impact ICU database. This is a database that has data on over 200,000 patients from 120 ICUs uh, across the country. They looked specifically at patients that went from the emergency department to the ICU. So they didn't look at transfers. They didn't look at folks who went to the floor first, decompensated, then went upstairs. Just the ED to the ICU. And they separated them into folks that were transferred in less than six hours versus the group that they called delayed, those who were transferred to the ICU in greater than six hours. And they looked at mortality. For ICU mortality, it was about 2% higher in the group that was delayed. When they looked at in-hospital mortality, it was about 4.5% higher in the group that was delayed in getting to the ICU. In stepwise logistic regression, they found uh, the survival in those who were delayed in getting to the ICU, the odds ratio was only 0.71. When they looked at the sepsis subgroup, the, the, the subgroup that our patient would fall into, the mortality difference was even more profound, about a 7% difference in mortality, both ICU and in-hospital, um, for patients that are delayed in getting to the ICU. They also found about an increased day in hospital length of stay. So if people were delayed in getting to the ICU, they were in the hospital about a day longer. And this all makes sense to me. I think in the emergency department, we can do quite a bit of diagnostics, start the resuscitation process, get antimicrobials, get the right labs going. But we don't have the same level of resources. As much as I would like to have an ICU in the emergency department, most of us don't. And we don't have the same level of nursing uh, ratios. We don't have the same level of detail. So if you start all of that sooner, it makes sense that less people will die and that they'll be in the hospital uh, for shorter periods of time. So if you consider these different interventions, many of which I think all of us consider uh, important interventions, I think transferring patients from the ED to the ICU in less than six hours is critically important. Now, we have data also in trauma patients. This is a study published by Brendan Carr. And Brendan was one of my residents briefly at Penn, then went on to do a trauma and critical care fellowship. And this is one of his earlier uh, publications. And he asked a simple question. He asked, is the emergency department length of stay a risk factor for developing pneumonia in blunt intubated trauma patients? This is a retrospective case control study of blunt trauma patients that have been brought to the trauma center at Penn. These folks could have been intubated in the field or intubated in the emergency department. Cases for this case control trial were those that developed pneumonia. Controls were matched controls that did not develop pneumonia. And they were matched by um, injury severity scores and abbreviated injury scores and by age. If we look at the length of stay of those who developed pneumonia, it was 281 minutes. And in those who didn't develop pneumonia, 
it was 214 minutes. With a multivariable logistic regression, they found that for each additional hour that a patient was in the ED, there was a 20% increase in developing pneumonia. Now, why is this? Well, I know when I walk around my own emergency department and see patients that are intubated, oftentimes their head of bed is flat. Um, I think that's one of the risk factors. We actually wanted to look at some of the other common things that we maybe think patients should routinely get after intubation. So we did a very simple descriptive study that we published last year. We looked at all the patients that we'd intubated that were boarding in the ED, so people that had a potential exposure to the care that they were getting in the emergency department, and looked at, again, common things that we think patients should be getting. Chest x-ray. Basically, everybody gets a chest x-ray. Uh, gastric decompression. 84% of patients got gastric decompression. Early sedation, and we define this as a sedative within 30 minutes. 83% of the time. An ABG, 77% of the time. An appropriate tidal volume. Now, this was a retrospective study, so we defined appropriate as 6 to 10 cc's per kilo, understanding that you know maybe that's not, maybe a patient should have gotten 6 or 8 or 9, but we thought 6 to 10 was a pretty good range based on ideal body weight, and only 71% of the time did patients get a, a, a tidal volume in that range. And essentially everyone who wasn't in that range got a tidal volume that was larger than 10 cc's per kilo. So as to why patients do worse when they're in the emergency department, I think there's a number of potential reasons, um, and I think part of it may be how we manage the ventilator. Let's go back to uh, our patient, our 39-year-old gentleman. So he did get lung protective uh, ventilation. He got early broad-spectrum antimicrobials. Uh, we did a bedside echo, which showed a hyperdynamic, underfilled heart. We gave him his uh, third and his fourth liter of fluid, and we called for a MICU bed. Talked to the ICU resident, said, great, sounds good. I'll be right down to see the patient, but I don't have any beds. So how often does this happen in your system? Yeah, for us, this feels like a daily occurrence. And we wanted to study this. We wanted to study this on a nationwide scale. So we did this study, and this was done by Peter Mullins. Peter was a... Um, MPH student at GW who came over to do his practicum with us at the hospital center. He's actually a first-year medical student now at GW in hopes of doing EM and then to do critical care, so you, you're going to want to keep an eye on him in three years or so. Um, it's a retrospective cohort study uh, at the National Hospital Ambulatory Care Survey. This represents visits over eight years between 2002 and 2009, and this would be equivalent to 943 million emergency department visits over this eight-year period. And we looked at a number of things, but the first thing we looked at was what's happening with the number of ICU admissions from the emergency department. So these are bunched into uh, groups of two years. And if we look at 2002 and 2003, there were 2.79 million ICU admissions from the emergency department nationwide in the United States in 2002-2003. If we look at 045, this went up to 3.16 million. 6-7, 3.79 million. And in 2008-2009, there were 4.14 million ICU admissions from the emergency department in the United States. To put this in perspective, let's look at total emergency department visits, and these are in the hundreds of millions. So in 023, there was 168 million visits. In 045, 169. In 67, 183 million. And in 2008, 2009, 199 million. And this is an impressive increase. It's an 18% increase over this eight-year period. But it's a 48% increase over the eight-year period for the number of ICU admissions. This translates to about 115,000 intubations per year, 190,000 central lines placed per year, and a mean emergency department length of stay 
of about five hours for each one of these patients. So why, is it, why are we seeing more uh, patients going to the ICUs? Is it that we're lowering our threshold to admit these patients to the ICU? And I think the answer to that is no. Uh, we looked at uh, length of stay, ICU length of stay, and there was no difference. We looked at the percentage of patients that are getting medications, procedures, fluids, and it was increasing, not decreasing, to suggest the severity of illness was increasing. I think it's just more patients are sick. We're seeing higher volumes of critically ill folks. We saw increased proportions of patients over the age of 85. The largest increase by insurer were those with Medicaid, potentially a group of patients that don't have as good access to care and are maybe coming to emergency departments sicker uh, than, than, uh, than other insured patients. So again, I think these data were very interesting nationwide, but we wanted to look at what was happening locally at the hospital center. And if you haven't been to Washington Hospital Center, it's um, right in the center of uh, D.C. It's a pretty large hospital, not nearly as nice as this hospital, uh, but about a 900-bed hospital. Busy trauma center, again, not the same volumes that we have here. It's a really busy cath lab, NIH stroke center, a burn center. It's a pretty, uh, pretty fun place to work. If you look at the number of ICU admissions from the ED, in 2006, uh, 1,429. In 07, we went up to 1,686. 08, 2,039. In 2009, we went up to 2,500. And uh, this jump here, this is right when we expanded our emergency department. Uh, and then we've essentially plateaued since then. We've been between 25 and 2,600 uh, patients admitted to the ICU from emergency departments. To put this in context, in 2006, we saw 76,000 patients, and we admitted 1.9% to the ICU. In 2012, we saw about 95,000 patients uh, and admitted 2.7% to the ICU. Nationwide, about 2.1% of patients that come into emergency departments are admitted to ICUs. Um, in our shop, this translates to 400 intubations per year and a median emergency department length of stay of five hours. Now, if we consider the golden hours of resuscitation are the first hour, maybe three hours, maybe six hours, the vast majority of this time is occurring in emergency departments. So if we recognize that we're seeing an increased volume of critically ill patients and they're spending the majority of their time in emergency departments, I think we need to come up with systematic ways to address this. So what are some of the things we can do to adapt? And I think one of the questions is, do we change how we train emergency physicians? And I think the answer to this is yes. Fellowship training is, I think, a critical part to how we address this, and, and fellowship training in critical care medicine. This has been an informal option since the 70s. Um, it became a, a, a folks here at Shock Trauma uh, started training as early as around 1990 or so, um, and it became kind of a routine track in 19, uh, 1998. There's still been a number of barriers despite this. In a survey that was done of program directors in 2005, only 38% said that they would consider folks with primary training in emergency medicine. And for those of us who did pursue critical care training, there was no board certification. So I finished my fellowship in 2004, uh, went up to Philadelphia. I went to Berlin first to take the written exam, which I was fortunate to pass, came back, uh, then went back the next year in 2005 to uh, London uh, to take the oral exam. And for the oral exam, so I went to the Chelsea and Westminster Hospital, walked into the hospital, up to the ICU, I uh, was given 45 minutes to examine a patient, uh, and then 30 minutes to examine a second patient. And after that, came out and stood there in a semicircle 
with a number of examiners, including Neil Sony, and some of you may know Dr. Sony. He's one of the editors of the Intensive Care Manual. This is very popular in the UK. His residents, his fellows, uh, respiratory therapists, nurses, and was just peppered with questions one after another for about 20 minutes. Had to interpret CTs and um, EKGs and plane films and labs. And probably the most difficult question that I got was the last question, and that was directly from Dr. Sony, who said, what did we do wrong? Which was kind of challenging to tell Dr. Sony what, what he did wrong. It was actually kind of an easy question because the patient was septic at a lactate of 4.9. It wasn't recognized for about 12 hours, but intimidating nonetheless. But this is what you had to do if you wanted to get board certified in critical care as an emergency physician. And fortunately, the hospital that I worked at recognized that certification because uh, it was a European diploma. If we look at the number of emergency physicians that have trained in critical care, back between 74 and 89, and I'll tell you, these, do, these data come from Julie McLaughlin. Julie finished here at Shock Trauma a year after I did. Um, in, in 74 and 89, there were 12 folks. Between 1990 and 99, there were 15. And these are guys like Bill Bozeman and Dave Millsman, both of whom I think are still practicing, and many of you, some of you in this room may know. Um, after the formalized track was in place, the numbers shot up. In 2000 and 2007, there was 43. And between 08 and 13, about 145. It's estimated that there's somewhere between 250 to 300 emergency physicians that have now trained in critical care. A huge accomplishment was having a board certification track. And, and you all know that the ABIM and the ABEM um, approved co-sponsorship for critical care training for emergency physicians. Uh, the first exam, I think, was last November, the first, or maybe two Novembers ago, and all 25 emergency physicians that took it passed the exam, which I think is fantastic. There's now over 40 different institutions that train emergency physicians in critical care. Our program at Hospital Center started in 2009. We, uh, we just took our eighth fellow, and three of our graduates either have or are working here. Um, Anthony Mitchell, some of you may know, I think he went on to do an aerospace medicine fellowship or something like that. Um, Leslie Matisik and uh, Brian Zawinski, all three of them went through the Air Force and uh, are here at Maryland through the Sea Stars program. But there's still barriers. The ACGME still limits the number of fellowship spots we can offer to emergency physicians. And this is something that Dr. McCurdy's been battling for some time, or at least trying to. Um, so the way this translates in our shop, we have 10 fellowship spots in total. And we can only use two of them for emergency physicians. So it means we can only take one EM doc per year to train in, criti to train in critical care. Fortunately, now there are paths through surgery and anesthesia. Um, and of course, you guys know about these since you have uh, the surgical path here. So I think part of it is changing how we train emergency physicians. And not just, not just critical care fellowships, but incorporating more critical care training into emergency medicine residencies. What about changing how we build emergency departments? I think that we're all going to learn quite a bit from the University of Michigan uh, experience. And they have their what they call the Michigan Center for Integrative Research and Critical Care and the Emergency Critical Care Center, or the EC3. Uh, and you guys may be familiar with this. They have five large resuscitation bays for both medical and trauma patients right in their emergency department and nine ICU beds right behind those. And I'll show you some pictures. Kyle Gunnarsson, who's the medical director, sent me these slides yesterday. Uh, so thanks to Kyle. Uh, so this is their entrance from uh, coming in from the field, and they can go directly back to one of these five resuscitation bays. Uh, and this is what these bays look like. These are large spaces that have all the equipment that you would need. But you know, again, from my, my perspective, if you look at my shop, I have tiny rooms. And this is a tremendous amount of space to be able to do a proper resuscitation for patients. Um, after they're cared for in this space, they either can stay in these rooms 
or they can go back to one of these nine ICU beds. The beauty of this is they're, you know, very close to one another, and it's the same team that resuscitates them and then takes care of them. The idea is that they manage them for the first 6 to 14 hours, longer if they need to, uh, and they shift the focus. If you think about the time and energy that's spent transferring a patient from the emergency department to the ICU, if you put all of that time and energy into the diagnostics, into the resuscitation phase, there's a percentage of patients that wouldn't have to go on to an ICU. And that's exactly what they're seeing. They've had about 180 patients come through so far, and they're seeing just that. Patients that would have normally gone to an ICU, after they've spent 12 hours with them, they've been able to turn them around and admit them to, uh, to floors, which I think is really powerful. And this is not a unique model. Some of you may know of other places, um, University of Florida, Stony Brook. Um, John is going to be starting this, I think, at, at Penn is the hope. Uh, Jefferson, I think, um, uh, would like to set up something similar. So my hope is that in the next three to five years, we'll have solid data that shows that this actually is making an impact. What about regionalizing ICU care? I think we have pretty good data that say that there's a good link between case volume and outcomes. Certainly this exists for surgery, for MIs, for cardiac arrest, uh, for trauma patients. What about for the disease process that is the most common disease process in our ICUs, that is sepsis? Is there a role for uh, uh, regionalizing these patients and is there a link between case volume and outcomes? So this is a study we published last year in the Blue Journal and our goal here was to look at the relationship between case volume of severe sepsis and mortality. We did a retrospective cohort study of a nationwide inpatient sample. So we divided all of the hospitals based on their case volume of severe sepsis patients. We categorized them as hospitals that had less than 50 cases per year, 50 to 99 cases per year, 100 to 249 cases per year, 250 to 499, or those with more than 500 cases per year of severe sepsis. And we looked at mortality. So if we look at the odds ratios, and we, we're comparing here to hospitals with less than 50 cases per year, in hospitals with 50 to 99 cases per year, the odds ratio of inpatient mortality is 0.85. In those with 100 to 249, the odds ratio goes down to 0.75. In 250 to 499, it's 0.72. And in those with more than 500 cases, the odds ratio of inpatient mortality is 0.64. So does it make a difference how sick you are? We stratified this by the number of organ dysfunctions patients have. So if we look first at those with one organ dysfunction, uh, if, you have, uh, if you're treated in a hospital with less than 50 cases per year, your inpatient mortality is 18.9%. If you're treated at a place with 500 or more cases per year, inpatient mortality is 10.4%. As the number of organ dysfunctions go up, this relationship continues. When we go up to three organ dysfunction, these start to come together, but they still continue. And when we get to four or more organ dysfunctions, this no longer is significant. And the way I interpret these data is to say that if somebody's sick, but maybe not that sick, one organ dysfunction, two organ dysfunction, uh, it maybe it does make a difference where you're taken care of, and that if you see this more commonly, you're going to maybe do things a little bit differently. You may have different processes in place. But once you get to four or more organ dysfunction, your mortality is around 50%. Now, does this mean we should regionalize care? Well, that's not totally the question that we addressed, and I think that that's a complex question. I think that there are real uh, 
negative consequences of regionalizing care. I think uh, there's uh, financial considerations of smaller hospitals um, facing the impact of losing those patients, larger hospitals having to deal with the volumes of the larger patients, of more patients, and then there's social impacts like patients having and their family members having to travel further distances uh, to see their uh, family members and loved ones. So I don't know that that's the right answer. What about changing how we have staff ICUs? And now, I don't remember how the staffing is here. I think for surgery, I know it's 24-7 in-house. What about for medical? Same. Okay. So at uh, Hospital Center, on our surgical side, we have a surgical, uh, or rather an intensivist in-house 24-7. And our medical side, we have a fellow in-house 24-7, but not an attending. Um, but this, is, I think, is an interesting question. This is something Meetha Prasad tried to address in this study that she published uh, about two years ago now um, from Penn. And it's a randomized controlled trial that was in the HUP medical ICU over one year. What they did is they took blocks of seven consecutive nights throughout this year, and they randomized these blocks to either have an intensivist in-house or to not have an intensivist in-house and just have the regular standard uh, care team. Uh, and so just to kind of give you an idea of what the HUP Mickey was like, it's a 24-bed uh, ICU. There's two teams. Each one of those teams is an attending, a fellow, an advanced practice nurse, and six residents. At nighttime, there's three residents in-house. So if there was an in-house intensivist, that individual was not on service, and it was never the same person more than once any given week. So somebody that was essentially cross-covering for the night between 7 p.m. and 7 a.m. For the, uh, for the uh, control weeks, the team fellows and attendings went home by 7 p.m., came back at 7 a.m. the next day. Now, if there was an event or a new patient that came in, the expectation was that it was discussed within one hour. In the intervention arm, if there was an event or a new patient, the uh, in-house intensivist went to see that patient. Their primary outcome was ICU length of stay. They did also look at mortality, and they also looked at residents' perceptions of the quality of care that was being delivered. So if you look at the baseline characteristics, they're essentially the same in both groups. If we look at time to discharge, again, their primary outcome, there's no difference. If we look at just the patients that are admitted at nighttime, potentially those who would be, have greater impact by having an intensivist there at nighttime, there's no difference. If we look at mortality, ICU mortality, no difference in the two groups. If we look at hospital mortality, again, no difference in, in the groups. The only place where there was a difference was in residents' perception of the quality of care and the education that they were receiving. Now, is this a reason to have an in-house intensivist? I think that that very much is up to individual places to figure out. Um, and I think it's important to consider the generalizability of these data. This is at Penn. This is where they have um, you know, six residents on a team, three residents at nighttime, uh, an advanced practice nurse. These are really aggressive, intensive teams. So I don't know that these data are totally generalizable, certainly not to community hospitals. Um, so I, you know, again, I don't know that having an in-house intensivist is the right answer. So just to kind of wrap up, I think that delays to ICU admissions are associated with higher mortality, and it's something that we all need to work towards decreasing. I think that uh, increasing volumes of critically ill patients is a reality, and I think that this is only going to get worse as our population it continues to age. I think we need to remove barriers to critical training for, for emergency physicians and find more ways to increase the uh, critical care training opportunities within our emergency medicine residencies, recognizing that the vast majority of EM physicians aren't going to pursue critical care training. Uh, and I think that we need to come up with creative ways to increase our ICU capacity, much like you've done here uh, at the University of Maryland. With that, thank you again uh, for the opportunity to speak.
questions. First of all, welcome back. Thank you. This is spot on for one of the things that we're doing. I see Dr. Rubinson is here as well. Um, we recognized this institutionally a couple of years back and, and set up the critical care resuscitation. <coughs> very idea in mind, not from to decompress our RPD, but to get those patients in from other institutions. What we kind of decided is really time sensitive illness. And, and uh, it's staffed 24 7, intensivist in the mid level, and uh, Work. You know, Tom and Scalia and I were at dinner one night before we opened. He said, "How busy do you think we're going to be?" I said, "I don't know." And we did about 2,000 patients in the first year, so I, I guess we were kind of busy. Um, a couple of questions for you. Yes. Um, when you see that, when I, the plot that you put out with the number of admissions that you had over time to the ICU increasing, was your ICU did your ICU capacity increase or? Did you yeah, that's a great question. So our ICU capacity did not increase. Uh, and, and so locally, and we are, our perception is we are perpetually boarding ICU patients, and we'll board them in, um, in our resuscitation areas. Uh, we'll board them in our PACUs. We'll board them in, in what's called the SIVR, the cardiovascular resuscitation area. Um, we did not increase our capacity. We, the biggest jump that we, we saw was when we increased our ED size. The other thing, which I think all of us who worked in an ICU, there's probably things that upset me a lot, but things that really set me off. You're trying to make ICU rounds in the morning, and suddenly you got two really sick people hitting the door. And the beauty of the, this, the CCRU is your entire job up there, your entire workflow is nothing but getting those patients in. We've kind of we set it up with an eight-hour quotation mark, is about as long as we wanted patients up there, and then get them to the appropriate unit. And, and we've been pretty good at that. Um, but the beauty is your entire job up there is to get those patients in and get them organized, resuscitated, and, and whatever evaluation needs to be done. We're pretty uh, uh, interventional, heavy up there. Um, but that's very different than being in the ICU and you know, those two sick patients roll in. Uh, your entire <coughs> workflow just blew up in a very big way. But again, Great talk, and thank you, and it's good to see you. Thank you. If I may ask you a question about that, yeah. how would that impact patients that come into the University of Maryland Emergency Department in that um, are they do, they, do they spend less time in the ED and are they getting transferred up? Well, we, know, we see a, a fair number of patients from out. Most of the patients we're seeing are from the outside. We do have uh, an agreement with the, with the ED. If there's a patient who will just kind of put in quotation, really sick. Yeah. There's no immediate ICU bed, which is the struggle we all have yeah. uh, for an immediate bed. Those patients will come up to the CCRU, and I think Dr. Rubinson will probably talk to that even better than I can. Great. Dr. Zubra. I think it's nice to see a great talk. Thank you. Um, a couple comments and a question. So uh, at Christiana, we uh, perceived the problem of the ICU border, and uh, our solution was to tell the ICU, and it was a... Um, at first a monstrous disaster. And the reason it was is because the nurses weren't staffed up. Yeah. And in fact, the uh, ED physicians were very happy to start the resuscitation and pass it on to the docs, but the ED nurses were still staffed at four to one. They could not provide the care. And in fact, when we did a drill down, uh, why were the patients being delayed? Because the nurses were picking off which orders they decided they wanted to do, and they would leave the rest for the ICU nurses. And if they boarded 24 hours, half the orders still weren't taken off. Yeah. So uh, I, I think it is less a physician issue 
than the dynamics of the ED workflow. Uh, you know, if somebody comes in with a trauma, they call a trauma code, 3,000 people run. They call a heart code, 3,000 people run. Stroke code, 3,000 people. Sepsis code, you're talking to the cleanup guy. Right. Most of the time, you don't speak it. Which has the highest mortality? Sepsis. Right. Uh, which dovetails into my next uh, wisecrack. Uh, so Matty Rivers, uh, his article, uh, I don't think process and arise in that Australian study just came out, necessarily say that early goal-directed therapy doesn't work. What it says is you don't need to do mixed venous sats and you really don't need to micromanage it that way. I don't think anybody in their right mind nowadays would not give at least two to three liters of saline or whatever fluid they wanted to a sepsis patient within the first hour. And in fact, you did goal-directed therapy if you used an ultrasound to see what the LV size was. That's right. So I, I, I think Matty Rivers deserves a lot more credit. He gets beat up pretty well. Uh, and he really brought to our attention how important it was to get them resuscitated aggressively, just like every other shot state, and to give them the antibiotics very early. And I don't think we should take those three studies to say early goal-directed therapy doesn't work. I think we should take those three studies and say, you don't have to measure mixed venous sac. Uh, and that's all I would really say about those studies. It's remarkable to me that I keep proving that. I, I agree. Yeah. Uh, go ahead. I'll make a quick comment about that, because I trained under you in the uh, medical ICUs at, uh, at Christiana. And I remember, I don't believe it was when you and I were working together, it could have been, when we had a, uh, a patient with ARDS. And I, and I remember this person was you know, kind of categorized as being in the acute phase of resuscitation. And our thought was to run them dry. We wanted to try to run them dry. And I think that your point is very well taken. And I hope I wasn't mistaken to say that um, goal-directed therapy doesn't work or it's not important. I agree with you. What Rivers demonstrated was the importance of early aggressive care. You know, a couple important takeaway points from Rivers' study is 14% of the patients didn't get antimicrobials. That's tremendous. If we consider the impact of the Kumar data and how important early antimicrobials are, to say that they didn't get antimicrobials in the six-hour window is powerful. You know, Rivers' study comes before the era of ARDSnet. And I think that there's a tremendous impact of appropriate mechanical ventilation of these patients. So there's a number of things along the way, I think, that have changed, as well as the general perception of how to resuscitate these patients. I think it's just gotten better. Oh, yeah. And in fact, Rivers uh, has his care delivery models, which you're espousing here, because he actually had a critical care fellow in a six or eight bed ICU attached to the ER at Detroit receiving when you ran this study. So if somebody came and looked at this thing, grabbed the patient, the fellow took care of that patient for 24 hours a day, or I think it was under, even under NIH grant. So it really was very similar to what you're talking about. The question I have for you, and I apologize for the work for this, is in your study with Dave Gajewski, the last one you showed, um, did you look at intensivist involvement as you looked at the volume? Or was this just pure numbers? So in other words, the hospitals with the lower case volume, did they necessarily have intensivists or you didn't die, you were not, probably not able to We, we don't have that data point. NIS. Yeah. yeah. Thanks. Yeah, sure. So, question. Oh, yes. I know we're throwing around the term ICU. Some people call it critical care unit. We tend to call our unit you know, resuscitation unit, uh, which tends to fall on deaf ears, people not realizing. In my mind, there's a big difference in whether it's done in the ED or done in a traditional critical care space, once a patient is admitted and is on their path, that's a very different experience, whether it's in an ICU, than the admission. 
right? In the early, when you talked about diagnostics, uh, therapeutic interventions, decision about um, additional imaging, whether or not they go to the OR, et cetera, right? So I'm actually not even sure it's ICU out, uh, care outside of the ICU, but really we're talking about a new paradigm. We're talking about early critical care resuscitation. Some places will choose to do it in the ED environment, like the University of Michigan. We've chosen to do it mostly because a third of all the patients at the University of Maryland come through transfers to do it through a transfer resuscitation. But I don't think we should ever rely on the ICU to be that home anymore yeah. because it's, even they're not staffed and resourced properly for admissions, like Jim was talking about, the workflow and everything, unless it's two to five in the afternoon, it's just a pain in the ass to keep admitting multiple patients, and you're never gonna do it as good as if you had all hands on deck, all your nurses could be pulled from their assignment in the room and it could happen really quickly. Yep. So I think we're gonna probably see even the nature of ICU medicine change from kind of definitive longitudinal management management of critical care versus resuscitation. Do you, do you kind of see that's the next conversation? I, I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. Um, I think one of the interesting data points, I didn't talk about in this, uh, uh, in this talk, um, I, I really believe that we injure patients routinely with how we ventilate them uh, in, in the first few hours of care. I think it's you know part of the two-hit phenomena. People come in inflamed. We give them inappropriate event settings even for a few hours, and I think it probably injures them. And one of the interesting studies is Gadget's work back in, I think it was 2004, where he looked at uh, how patients were ventilated in a, um, I think it was an observational study. Ultimately, one of the things he demonstrated was that the initial vent settings, first off, 95% of the time, those are the largest tidal volumes patients receive. And 75% of the time, they don't change for 24 hours. So I think that I know many of my colleagues in the emergency department have this false sense that once you get a patient into the ICU, a team will descend on them and, you know, resuscitate them and fix anything. So, so I think you're absolutely right. It, this is really more about a matter of aggressive resuscitation wherever that occurs within your institution. Thanks. Yeah, uh, we just published, our, our group just published this similar uh, kind of assessment of assessing, looking at tidal volumes in, uh, in, in the ED. Uh, largely, I mean, consistent with what you've talked about. I mean, way over-ventilated. Um, the uh, other thing in talking about paradigm shifts, you know, and how to, you know, approach critical um, you know, critical care and resuscitation, I mean, all this focus has been on the ED or in an initial ICU. I feel like even though that um, we have, you know, there have been large uh, studies looking at rapid response teams, I think an off-neglected off area is the floor. I mean, in, in the complicating aspect of the floor is that, you know, you have an existing uh, disease that's being managed and teasing out whether is this, is this just a normal development of this abnormality that requires hospital admission where they are, or is it an acute, uh, acutely new problem going on that, you know, new sepsis, new whatever. Um, and that, I think that uh, paradigm shift still needs to take place, and that sort of way we think about um, resuscitation should include those individuals as well. And it's a much more, seems complicated uh, issue to tease out, though. But.
Thank you, Anish. Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah, that's great. Thank you.